the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or estate law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Again, thanks to David Kincaid for leading us into the show. For those of you who don't know about the show, it's in two parts. The first part, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And that's what I do, you know, in my real-life job. I'm an estate planning attorney with Connors and Sullivan. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, you know, give us a call right now. Our phone number here is 866-970-9622, 1-866-970-9622. Now, the second part of the show, we do interviews. We talk about politics, history, religion. Um, tonight we're going to be talking, and baseball sometimes, and tonight we're going to be touching about history, I guess, politics to some extent and baseball and baseball history. And we're going to have one guest talking about General Thomas Francis Marr because on July 1st is the 150th anniversary of the death of Thomas Francis Marr. And those of you who listen to our show regularly, you know that he was the commander of the Irish Brigade in the American Civil War. And there's going to be an event at Greenwood Cemetery we're going to be talking about where a bronze bust of General Marr is going to be unveiled. And it's going to be Saturday, July 1st, 1 p.m., 5th Avenue and 25th Street, the main gate of Greenwood Cemetery. You can't miss it. The main gate of Greenwood Cemetery, Saturday, July 1st at 1 p.m., 25th Street and 5th Avenue, Brooklyn, New York. And uh, it should be a a very nice event. And I'm honored that uh, Greenwood Cemetery is going to take one of the dioramas that I have in my Brooklyn office, and they're going to display that there because I have a diamond in our Brooklyn office of General Thomas Francis Marr leading the Irish Brigade in the charge at Antietam in September 1862. My son, Michael, tonight is uh, going to be pitch-hitting for my wife, Beth. So, uh, Michael, I know you know about General Thomas Francis Marr. Uh, You know the diorama we're talking about. Yes, sir, I do. Okay, so... They're going to be moving that over, and they're going to display it at the chapel while we're having the uh, the event. Now, Lefty O'Doul, you know anything about Lefty O'Doul? I do not, unfortunately. Uh, okay, well, Lefty O'Doul was a great baseball player who brought baseball to Japan and had a great influence on globalizing the sport. You know, our phone calls are starting to back up a little bit, so let me try to take a couple of the phone calls. First, we've got 
Edmund in Greenpoint. Yes, Edmund, what's your Hi, what's Mr. Your Connors. I have a question for you. Um, my mom is uh, just is, has got uh, early onset uh, dementia, and uh, she's going to have to go to a nursing home. Now, I uh, live in New Jersey, but she has a house in Brooklyn in Greenpoint, and um, uh, uh, basically, um, I know that I've, uh, I'm her power of attorney, and uh, my question is, I, I want to sell my house in New Jersey and move into her house once she goes into the nursing home so I can stay as close to her as possible. Can I transfer her house into my name using her power of attorney if I'm also the executor of her will and, and the sole beneficiary? Yeah, well, it would, a lot depends on how the power of attorney was written. If the power of attorney gives you the authority to do that, then you can. If the power of attorney does not give you the authority, well, that might be a question. Now, you said your mother was beginning dementia, so can she sign her own name right now? Does she recognize you? Can she speak in sentences? Uh, most of the time she can't, no, not okay. anymore. All right. Uh, are you an only child? Yes, I am. Okay, well— I might take a gamble with Medicaid then, but if the PAV attorney, hopefully the PAV attorney gives you the authority to transfer the assets, I might do it in a trust uh, to you for mom. We could also do what's called a life estate. Ordinarily, I don't like life estates, but if mom's going to go to a nursing home, she doesn't really have that much to live in if you're an only child. So either way, that way, if you hold the property till after mom's gone, the property will be worth whatever it's worth at Bob's time of death, you would be able to get tax-free up to $5,125,000. And, you know, if she goes to a nursing home, you have any unpaid bills, we want to do something about that. Now, I think you said that you have some insurance? She's got uh, she's got long-term care insurance, which is going to cover for most of her, her uh, for most of her uh, uh, nursing home, yeah. So right. I don't think we're going to need to do any Medicaid planning, you know, luckily. But we still want to avoid probate, and depending on how power of attorney is written, if we can, we want to get that property into a trust. For you, possibly a life estate. A lot depends on your situation, what would happen to the house if something happened to you. But you got to do something, okay. whatever it is. All right? All right okay, I'm thank gonna... you very much. Mr. All right, Connors. thank you. we got Mike in Queen. Yes, Mike, what's your question? Hi, Mr. Connor. We really enjoy your show. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, we have a bunch of CDs and IRAs in CD form in assorted banks and the credit union, and they're all payable on debts uh, to my wife and I, but then to our three children Right. Uh, when we go. Now, what I want to know is if they want to go claim that money after we're gone, uh, do they just go to the financial institution and do that, or do, do they have to do that through our will? And that? No, no, know? they don't have to go through the will if they're named as beneficiary, assuming they're all over 18, correct? Right, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so if they're all over 18... Basically, all they need is a death certificate, certified oh, okay. copy and then of the they death would certificate. Go into the branch, and the the branch would like, I guess, uh, close the CDs, and it, it, even though they're not due yet, I guess there wouldn't be a penalty. Right? There's no penalty upon death, and and then they they would distribute it evenly among the three children. Well, like, however, you have it written down as beneficiaries. Right. That, that's how we wrote. Okay. Okay. Well, that that was uh, one that's I've been wondering about for a while, and I appreciate that. Okay. Again, that doesn't protect from medical bills, but it does avoid probate. And there are different goals in what we're trying to do in our planning. Right. So they don't have to, like, go over to the financial institution with, with a will or something? Uh, you no. Know. The will only covers assets that are in your name alone when you pass away, by your name, you or your wife, who's ever the survivor. 
A will does not right. control assets where you have CDs and you have beneficiaries. It goes and they, straight. And they break up the CDs and figure out like a third each. and then uh, I guess Well, if all three names check. are there, yeah. Anything can be divided by third up to a penny. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. All Appreciate right. it. All right. Good luck. Thanks for listening to the show. All right. So I guess we're going to take a short break in a minute. We're going to talk. If you have any more estate planning questions, you know, we've got one more segment, 866-970-9622. 866-970-9622. And after that, after we take our next segment, if we have any questions, we'll answer them. If not, we'll just talk. After that, we're going to be talking to Dennis Snelling about his book about Lefty O'Doul, one of the interesting baseball players of the 20th century. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. We'll be back just in a few minutes. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, July 17th at Vesuvio Restaurant, 7305 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. At Buckley's, 2926 Avenue S in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn on Tuesday, July 18th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. PM and on Thursday, July 20th at the Montauk Club, 25 8th Avenue in Park Slope, Brooklyn at 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors and Sullivan, 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Okay, well, welcome back to uh, Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Again, my son Michael is pinch hitting from my wife, Beth. Michael, I think you have a couple of email questions. You ready to go? Yes, sir. I am indeed. Okay, Uh number one. First off, though, I'd like to wish you a happy Father's Day on air. Thank you. And 
The first question is from Henry. Hello. What happens if a will is found to be invalid? Is there a way to fight for my inheritance as I feel my father's will is invalid? And that's from Henry. Okay. Yes. Well, here's the thing. If you if you believe your will, your father's will to be invalid, you should see a lawyer right away. Now, assuming you live in New York, it's a bad assumption, but at least for our argument, I'm going to assume you live in New York. So, if you live in New York and there are any other there are assets in your father's name alone, whoever is the executor of the will has to officially notify you that the will is being offered for probate, and that gives you the opportunity to file objections to your will. Or first, what you might want to do is asked to examine, has to have an attorney examine the witnesses to the will to see if you might have any grounds to contest the will. And basically, the the grounds to contest the will was their undue influence, which, you, of course, you should know this yourself. Was your father of sound mind at the time that he signed the will? Did sometimes a technical irregularity can throw out a will? And, of course, that's more likely to happen today when people print up wills off the Internet and the will is not properly signed or supervised the execution is not properly supervised. It's possible the will could be thrown out for that reason or if the witnesses are uncooperative or for whatever reason. But if you fa- if you think your father's will is not valid, of course, there's got to be a reason. It can't just be because I don't like it. It can't be because, you know, uh, he left it to my brother and I don't like my brother. It's got to be a legal reason. Was Did somebody exercise undue influence on your father? Was your father ill where he couldn't make his own decisions and somebody put a pen in his hand? Was the will properly signed? Is it your father's signature? I mean, I haven't had this case in a long time, but every once in a while, wills are forgeries. Somebody, they write a will after the person passes away. They forge their name to the will and see if it goes through, see what they can get away with. So, you know, did your father sign the will? And again, was it properly witnessed and executed? But the first step is to see a lawyer. If you know the will was filed in surrogate's court in whatever county, take a look see if the will was filed, see if you can get a photocopy of it, which you can if it is filed. And the other thing is your greater danger might be if the will, you know, if all the assets were put in such a place that it doesn't have to go through probate. In other words, if all the assets were joint, like Mike's question from Queens, if all the assets are in trust for joint, we're not going to go through probate, and it's possible you could be on the outside looking in. You still need to talk to a lawyer to see what your options are, but... If you live in New York, if your father had assets in his name alone, if it goes through probate, <coughs> you have to be officially notified, and that gives you opportunities to contest your will. All right, we have a question from Mildred. What's the question, Michael? All right. Um, what happens to my underage child if I were to pass away and I were divorced and I currently do not have a will. Okay, well, one, assuming the father of the child, or the other parent of the child, could be appointed administrator of your estate since that parent would be the next of kin and the logical guardian of that child, and that's what would happen. Uh, that should not happen because you should have a will. And one of the problems about that, and this happened a lot, in September 11th, because on September 11th, there were a lot of young people that passed away without planning things out, without having a will. So let's say somebody was in the September 11th, they were in one of the buildings, their estate got a million-dollar settlement, they have a child under the age of 18. Well, 
that money eventually would be given to that child, but it would be given to that child on the child's 18th birthday, which is not necessarily the best plan. Maybe you want somebody to invest that money for the child until they're 21, 25, 30, whatever age you think is right, and that's one of the reasons you need a will. And, and a lot of people, a lot of younger people say, well, I don't need a will because I don't own anything. I, You know, I just have a couple of dollars in my retirement plan and a few dollars in insurance, and that's got beneficiaries, and I really don't need a will. Well, everybody should have a will because if for no other reason, let's say for the sake of argument, you have a younger person. They're in a car accident. They pass away as a result of the accident. There's a lawsuit after they pass away. Who gets the money from the lawsuit? Who controls the money from the lawsuit? I've seen cases where rival factions of the family just fight over the fact who's going to control the lawsuit. Sometimes it might be the lawyers pushing them, which lawyer they want to control the lawsuit, but sometimes that can go forward. And if you have a minor child who just lost their parent, I don't think you want that child to be in the middle of that lawsuit. You want to choose the person to protect your child's interest as, you know, if you're not there. And that's one of the most important parts about a will, especially if you're young, if you have children under 18. You should do a will to appoint a guardian. You appoint a guardian. Where does the child go to school? Where, who signs the report cards? So forth and so on. But also you appoint a guardian. Who's going to invest the money for your child? And where is it going to be invested? And what age does the child get the proceeds of the investment? So I, I can't stress it enough. Everybody should have a will. And, you know, like sometimes people don't have a will. And the, the, the stupid little things happen. Age. They, they lease a car. They want to keep the car. But there's nobody authorized to either continue the lease or terminate the lease. And if they pass away without a will, by the time we get administrator appointed, maybe the car payments confiscates the car. I, I, and, I mean, I know that's a minor thing in the, the whole realm of things. But sometimes it happens. Somebody lives in an apartment. They die in an apartment. Police put a seal in front of the apartment. There's no will. We have problems getting what we call letters to take the uh, yellow strip in front of the apartment. We're paying rent for months that we don't want to be paying. Everybody should have a will, and, and that's an exception. If you go to one of our seminars, and again, we're doing our seminars in Brooklyn at the end of July. We're going to be in Queens in August, and we're going to be in Staten Island and Manhattan in September. And if you go to one of the seminars, one of the things we talk about is why everybody needs a will. Yes, you want to plan things out so we don't have to go to court. We want to avoid probate. We want to plan things so we don't use the will, but we want to avoid probate. But you never know what's going to happen. You could own that car. You could have furniture in your apartment. You could have a lawsuit after you're gone. Everybody needs a will. We try to plan things. You don't need to utilize that will if everything goes right. And if anybody wants to give us a call and talk to us at Connors & Sullivan, you're more than welcome to do it. Our phone number is 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We can talk about estate planning and elder law. The first meeting, the first consultation is free. Everything we do as far as estate planning and elder law is on a flat fee basis. We don't charge by the hour. We charge by the job. Come in. We'll talk it over. We have offices in Brooklyn, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, on 5th Avenue and 74th Street. Staten Island, 1250 Highland Boulevard, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island, 110 East 59th Street in Manhattan, Bayside, Queens, Middle Village, Queens. Give us a call at 718-238-6500, schedule an appointment. All right, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to be talking baseball about Lefty O'Doul.
Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number... 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. A few months ago, we had on author Timothy Egan, and he was talking about General Thomas Francis Marr, whose remains were never found. But we're going to try to make up for that in a few days because on July 1st they're going to have an unveiling of a bust of General Marr and with me right now is Jeff Richmond from Greenwood Cemetery. How are you doing today? Great, great. Some of the people out there obviously know what Greenwood's, where Greenwood Cemetery is, what it is. Some people probably have no idea. Can you just tell them? I mean, it's one of the hidden treasures of the city. Yes, and uh, fortunately less hidden than it used to be. And so actually way back uh, 20 years ago, I wrote a book called Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery, New York's Buried Treasure. And we have emerged quite significantly since then. So I think uh, the word is spreading about what a great, great place that is. And Greenwood uh, dates to 1838. We are a National Historic Landmark. There are only a handful of cemeteries that have that honor in all of the United States. And we have over 570,000 people interred there. So it is a um, sensational place of history. And we are also a designated arboretum and have about 8,000 trees in there and all sorts of plantings and a great place of 19th century architecture. 
And so uh, there's a lot uh, to see at Greenwood and a lot going on at Greenwood. A couple of weeks ago, the great historian Ed Bars was in Brooklyn, and we drove by Greenwood Cemetery, and I mentioned there are more than a few Civil War generals buried there. Can you tell the audience who is buried there? We have actually, in 2002, we started a Civil War project. And so at the time, we thought that we might find 500 Civil War veterans, and we have now past the 5,000 mark of Civil War veterans. And so for each of those, we have had volunteers research and write biographies, all of which are online on our website. And we have 16 Union generals, including General Halleck, uh, who commanded all Union forces, uh, armies during the Civil War. And uh, we also have two Confederate generals, uh, General Robert Selden Garnett, who was killed at Cheat River in what's now West Virginia, has the distinction of being the first general killed in battle during the Civil War, and also Nathaniel Harrison Harris, who was from Mississippi and uh, was involved in the very last defenses in April of 1865 around uh, Petersburg. And we have discovered uh, almost 100 Confederates, who came up uh, primarily to Brooklyn for the economic opportunity with the Southern economy in collapse and established themselves up there and got themselves buried uh, at Brooklyn, including uh, David Bridgeford, who was the provost marshal of the Army of Northern Virginia and signed many of the passes at Appomattox Courthouse to allow the officers to go uh, home and plant their crops in the spring of 1865 after they had surrendered. And uh, we have uh, many fascinating stories of the Civil War. Now, on July 1st, General Thomas Francis Marr, commander of the Irish Brigade, I didn't know too recently his wife, his widow, was buried at uh, Greenwood Cemetery? She is. He was actually married twice, and so this is his second wife, Elizabeth Townsend Marr. And she actually there uh, was a Townsend uh, iron uh, foundry up along the Hudson, and the chain that was put across the Hudson at West Point during the Revolutionary War was made by her family, her ancestors at the uh, Townsend Foundry. And she married him. Uh, she converted, uh, she was a Protestant, she converted to Catholicism, and long lamented that actually he disappeared in 1867. And his body was never recovered uh, out in the Montana Territory along the Missouri River near Fort Benton. And uh, she lamented that he had no final resting place. And so early on in our Civil War project, uh, we actually had rededicated New York City's Civil War monument in Greenwood in 2002. And we had about 75 reenactors there at the time. And uh, I was thanking them for coming out, and they were thanking me and telling me what an honor it had been. It occurred to me I had long been fascinated by the Civil War. I had been a trustee of my local uh, Civil War roundtable, and that we should really be looking for Civil War soldiers. And so one of the first things I did was to start searching the Brooklyn Eagle online and various terms to try to find people associated with the Civil War. And up popped an obituary from 1906 for Elizabeth Townsend Marr, 
uh, describing her as the widow of the famous general. And uh, so that's what got me started. And also that one of the regiments in the Irish Brigade had been named Mrs. Mara's Regiment in her honor. And so uh, we started to research and uh, made efforts to raise some money for an appropriate monument for him and a sort of final resting place for him, uh, despite the fact that his body is not, in fact, at Greenwood and, as I said, was never recovered. The ceremony is going to be on July 1st at 1 o'clock? That's correct. And where will we meet? We will meet as you come into Greenwood at its main entrance, 25th Street and 5th Avenue in Brooklyn. Just proceed up the road. You'll pass the security guard and the arches, the brownstone facaded entrance to the cemetery. And just past that on the right is a American flagpole. And we will meet there. There will be transportation out. We do have a trolley that accommodates about 55 people. And so we will shuttle people out uh, to the gravesite. All right. So it's 1 p.m. July 1st, Greenwood Cemetery, 5th Avenue and 25th Street. Open to the public? Open to the public, absolutely. And then there'll be a reception hosted by the County Waterford uh, Association of New York after the dedication. Also, I'll be leading a trolley tour starting at 3 o'clock of uh, Irish Americans at Greenwood. And just one more point, it's on July 1st because that will be the 150th anniversary of his disappearance. Uh, He was the acting governor of the Montana Territory after the Civil War and disappeared July 1st of 1867. And so this will be exactly 150 years later that we unveil this bronze bus by Michael Karapian who has done a uh, sensational job on it. And we have donors who have donated to the bus uh, through the County Waterford Association and then donors who have donated for the granite base upon which the bus will be through the Greenwood Historic Fund. And so we're very excited finally to do this. We did in 2008 unveil a uh, cenotaph a granite marker from the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, and that was very exciting for us also. We had a proclamation from the then governor of Montana. Uh, Mar is still huge in Montana, and uh, there's an equestrian statue outside the state capitol in Helena of him uh, with his sword raised over his head which is appropriate because he was known as Mar of the Sword for his impassioned speeches that he gave, both on behalf of Irish independence and also on behalf of the Union. All right, so July 1st, honoring the immortal Irishman, to borrow Timothy Egan's book title, General Thomas Francis Mar, Greenwood Cemetery, 5th Avenue and 25th Street, July 1st at 1 o'clock. Thank you for uh, telling us about this, Jeff, and we'll hope to see you there. Okay, great. Thank you very much. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. 
So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors and Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors and Sullivan, plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. There was once a major league hitter who hit 349 lifetime, and he's not in the Hall of Fame. And I guess to some extent he's forgotten today, but we have somebody who's trying to correct that. Dennis Snelling, his book is Lefty O'Doul, Baseball's Forgotten Ambassador. How are you doing today? Doing great. Glad to be on. Now, Lefty O'Doul, I know most people in the audience are not going to have a clue who he is, except those guys who look at uh, Baseball Reference or the Baseball Encyclopedia, and they see some of the highest batting averages of all time, and they'll see Lefty O'Doul's name. Who was Lefty O'Doul? Lefty O'Doul was uh, a San Francisco native uh, who was very popular in that area. He started out actually as a pitcher uh, and was drafted by the New York Yankees in 1919 and uh, played them, and that's using the term loosely because he sat on the bench for two years and barely moved off of it. Uh, he just played in a handful of games. He hurt his arm early on. Um, he was sent back to San Francisco for a year, came back, spent another year on the bench with the Yankees, and then another year pretty much on the bench with the Red Sox. Went was sent back to the Pacific Coast League where he remade himself into an outfielder. And it was Early on, it was clear he was a great hitter. He had 392 in his first season in the Coast League as a full-time outfielder and made it back to the majors at age 31, had his uh, breakout year in 1929 when he had 398 for the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, hitting 32 home runs and only struck out 19 times. Um, He won another batting title at the age of 35, uh, and his career was over at about age 37, and he became a, a manager in the Coast League and also a hitting instructor, uh, maybe baseball's preeminent hitting instructor of his time. He was mentor to Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams. Um, he started an iconic bar in San Francisco, had a very colorful life, helped Gary Cooper play the role of Lou Gehrig uh, in Pride of the Yankees, was a tremendous backer of of youth baseball all over the country from Vancouver, British Columbia to to Brooklyn. Uh, But probably what 
makes him most important is his relationship with Japanese baseball. And through various tours, he actually is considered the unofficial father of professional baseball in Japan. And um, also was called back after the war in 1949 by Douglas MacArthur to help repair Japan-U.S. relations. And he kept going back to Japan until his death in 1969 and was recognized uh, he is in the Japanese Baseball Hall of Fame, although he's not in Cooperstown. Of, of course, he restarted his major league career when he was 31, so he didn't have the longest major league career. But at the same time, I think the last year he played in the major leagues, he still hit 316. Yes, he did. Yeah. And uh, he he was still a very – and I think he drove in – 40-something runs on only 170-something at-bats, so a very productive hitter They, uh, when he was used. Uh, he was just a really great hitter. All right, so he, he goes to the Pacific Coast League. In the 20s and 30s, the Pacific Coast League isn't quite what it is today. It, there's a big difference. Can you explain that? Sure. The Pacific Coast League is much more independent. Uh, the minor league system was not like today where you had farm teams. The Pacific Coast League signed its own players, so Ted Williams originally signed with the San Diego Padres, who actually uh, beat out the New York Yankees and St. Louis Cardinals for his services. Um, Joe DiMaggio signed originally with the San Francisco Seals. So did Paul Wehner, Earl Averill, Lefty Gomez. Uh, so they signed all their own players and actually were owners of means. They would outdraw some major league teams. And especially in the 1920s, uh, they limited major leagues' right to draft their players. So the quality of play was uh, quite high, especially in the 1920s before the Depression set in. And so to, to an extent, O'Doul was kind of stuck there because there was no way for him to leave um, unless the Seals got their, their price. Um, so it was a very competitive league and, and uh, a league that uh, he did very well in. Now, he was manager in the Pacific Coast League for how many years? 23 years, from 1935 to uh, 1957. And he's one of 10 men who've won more than 2,000 games in the minor leagues as a manager. Did he ever get a shot at major league managing? He turned down several uh, opportunities, uh, two or three with the New York Giants. Um, there was one with the Philadelphia Phillies in 1943 that he eventually turned down. One of the hottest ones was with the Philadelphia Athletics in the 1950s. Um, and if the Mack family had held on to the team, he would have been manager of the athletics in the early 50s, but the team was sold to Arnold Johnson, who moved the team to Kansas City. Um, he, I think, recognized the Yankees. He turned down an opportunity with the Yankees also in 1947. Um, he was sought after. He was considered one of the best managers in all of baseball and was actually higher paid than most uh, major league managers. He was making nearly 50000 a year at his peak. And uh, But he recognized that in San Francisco he – he had a great relationship with the uh, owner, Charlie Graham, and knew that uh, he could basically do what he wanted in San Francisco as far as running the team. He, he knew he wouldn't have that same uh, freedom if he was at the major league level. Uh, once things kind of turned sour for him in San Francisco, I think uh, he sought major league jobs, but his time had kind of passed at that point. Before we got in the air, we mentioned the fact that he was a pinch hitter in the Pacific Coast Leagues up until he was what what age? Well, he uh, played uh, every year until 1940, so he would have been 43 years old at that time. He did a couple of cameo appearances in 45, 46, 44, and 45, played a little in Japan in 49 when they went over, and his final uh, 
appearance was in 1956. He was 59 years old, last day of the season. He got up there. They brought the uh, outfield in and he hit the ball over their, over their heads and at age 59 ran out a triple and then later scored on a, on a single so he wasn't even pinch run for. Um, he also, uh, as a pinch hitter, uh, was the first man ever to hit pinch hit home runs in both games of a doubleheader uh, for the Seals in 1938 uh, when he was 41 years old. Now, how did he get interested in Japan, or how did Japan get interested in him in baseball? Well, uh, he had heard a little bit about it because an old teammate of his named Herb Hunter had gone over during the 1920s uh, several times with either individual players or a couple of teams uh, that were put together. Uh, and in, so in 1931, he got his opportunity to go over uh, with, a, with a Major League All-Star team, players that included um, Lou Gehrig and Al Simmons and Lefty Grove. Uh, and he really took to the country and almost immediately made arrangements to come back in 1932 and coach, spent several weeks coaching college players there. They didn't have a professional league. It was basically the big six college teams, which still exist today. And he um, uh, went over there with Mo Berg, Ted Lyons, and Herb Hunter. And uh, Lefty taught hitting, and Ted Lyons taught uh, pitching, and, and Mo Berg worked with him on catching. Um, and he just really loved it and started working with a guy named Sotaro Suzuki, who worked for a newspaper over there, and convinced the newspaper publisher um, to do another tour in 1934, and O'Doul promised that uh, he would make every attempt to bring Babe Ruth over, which was really what the, uh, the Japanese wanted to see, especially um, before Ruth uh, would retire. What was the relationship between the United States government and the Japanese government back in, let's say, 1934? Well, it became strained in the early 30s when the Japanese invaded Manchuria. So um, actually when the, the team came over in 1931, um, there was some concern on the part of some of the players on how they'd be received, but everything on the surface seemed to go well. However, the prime minister that they met with was overthrown about a month later. There was an assassination attempt on the emperor's life uh, about two months after they were there. So things weren't as good as they were on the surface. And in 1934, uh, Rob Fitz, in his uh, great book, Bonsai Babe Ruth, pointed out that uh, during that tour there was an attempted coup uh, that wasn't known at the time, but uh, if that had been successful, it would have uh, created quite a few problems. So um, there were definitely factions in Japan, some that were very anti-U.S. and some that were pro-U.S., and I would say relations were, were strained uh, from the 1930s on. When the war broke out, let's say December 7, 1941, how did Lefty Ozil take that? He almost took it personally. It, it really bothered him a lot because he felt that he'd gotten to know the Japanese and, and really liked them. Um, he really felt it was the military faction, uh, it was the government, not the people who were doing this. At the same time, you know, he had taken films. Uh, he had actually been arrested in 1932 when he went back to coach the college players. He was taking uh, film movies of the Tokyo, uh, Tokyo Bay, and uh, he made a big point that he'd turn those over to the U.S. government after uh, Pearl Harbor and hope they could make use of them. Um, you know, but at the same time, immediately after the surrender, you know, within weeks, he was he was in Japan trying to figure out uh, how he could make things better uh, and and 
maybe get back over there and, and bring the countries back together. You mentioned Mo Berg. Now, there are a lot of stories that Mo Berg was actually a spy during this time period. He was not actually a spy at that point because he didn't turn over the movies until 1941 or 42. And there's some talk about whether they were used. Now, he did become a spy for basically the forerunner of the CIA. Um, and he did... Uh, mysteriously take photos in 1934 during the Babe Ruth tour. He went up to the, the uh, rooftop of uh, the highest building in Tokyo, which was the hospital. Uh, actually called in sick and didn't play the game that day. So there's always been a lot of speculation. Um, but all the research I've seen and people I've talked to, um, it's pretty unanimous. He wasn't a spy at the time. Uh, but he did like taking risks, and that probably led to him eventually being hired as a spy that, and he had some language skills and was very good at traveling. And, and he did some pretty heroic things during World War II as well. So uh, that's not to diminish what uh, Berg did, but uh, evidence is he wasn't a spy at the time that he uh, was taking the photos in 1934. Now getting back to Pacific Coast League and Lefty O'Doul, I know you wrote a book about the Pacific Coast League earlier. Do you think there were many players in the Pacific Coast League in the 20s that could have been playing in the major leagues that didn't quite get their shot? Oh, yes. I think uh, one guy is Buzz Arlett, who was kind of the Babe Ruth of the Pacific Coast League. He was a spitball pitcher who won as many as 29 games in the league, and he hurt his arm. He turned into a switch-hitting uh, uh, outfielder um, and was playing for Oakland and just had tremendous stats every year. He ended up hitting over 400 home runs in the minor leagues. He got one year in the majors with the Phillies and uh, hit over 300, but his defense wasn't very good, and he was sent back to the minors playing in the International League. And that next year he hit four homers in a game twice uh, in the same season. Um, there were other many other players. Uh, Oxac Hart was a tremendous ball player, hitter. Um, there weren't as many teams, and and some of these players were unorthodox. They're not very good defensively, and especially uh, you know with smaller rosters, you had 20, 21, 22 players. Um, you had to have a guy who could play uh, both ends, and that hurt Lefty for a while because he was not a very good defensive outfielder. But you had Ike Boone. You had you had some Smee Jolly, some tremendous hitters at that time. Lefty O'Doul, do you think he belongs in the American Baseball Hall of Fame? I do, in the sense that I think the Hall of Fame has kind of missed out on, on not taking into consideration other factors like people who impacted the way the game was played or had an impact on the game like Lefty. And I, I don't think it's been, I think it's been only in the last 10, 15 years that this full impact has been felt as you've seen the real influx of players from from the Asian continent, especially Japan, but not just there. And the increased look at globalization of the game, I think he played a major role in that. And and then as a hitting instructor and the impact that he had on, on the game with, with different players and how the game was approached and how hitting was approached, I think those things should be factored in. Um, as far as a career, I mean, some, some of his defenders pointed to Dizzy Dean uh, as a parallel example. Bob Feller was one person who actually advocated for lefty and pointed out uh, Dizzy Dean. Um, but, you know, his career, he had he had four or five great years. Um, and, you know, there, the arguments could be made either way. But I think when you add the other things to the balance, it tips it in his favor. In my opinion, if I had a vote, I would uh, definitely look at that and look at him very seriously.
How did the players regard Lefty O'Doul at the top of his game, let's say in the late 20s into the early 30s? Well, he was considered one of the best hitters in the game. Bill Clem, the great umpire, called him the best hitter he had ever seen. Um, there was He would go on streaks. Uh, he could hit almost 500 for three or four weeks at a time, and yet he almost never struck out. He'd go two months sometimes without being struck out. Um, he was considered a scientific hitter, a hitter who studied He studied film. He was one of the first to do that. He kept book on every pitcher he ever faced. Um, he really studied hitting, he, and he loved teaching hitting to his teammates. One of his first was Chuck Klein, with the roommate with the Phillies, and, and on through his career down to Willie McCovey and, and uh, Philippe Alou at the end, uh, uh, you know, when he was doing some part-time coaching with the Giants in the 60s. Um, he was just considered a guy who, who, you know, people would, some of his teammates would stop and watch him. I remember when reading when he was acquired by the Brooklyn Dodgers in spring training, and, and he, he reported and started hitting, and all, all the other players just stopped and watched him hit. Um, he had beautiful technique, and he just hit the ball hard. He could handcuff outfielders with his line drives. He hit the ball that hard. Somebody reading this book, what do you want him to take away? What, what do you want him to learn about Lefty O'Doul? Well, I think probably the number one thing is that he is a really important figure in baseball history and deserves to be recognized for that. Um, he deserves to be remembered. Um, and he was a, a tremendous personality, uh, kind of one of those larger-than-life uh, personalities, especially in San Francisco, New York, Tokyo, uh, where he was known at the time. Um, a very entertaining guy uh, and a very talented person who had impacts in a lot of ways. But probably, like I said, most of all, that uh, he's an important baseball figure that deserves to be remembered. The name of the book, Lefty O'Doul, Baseball's Forgotten Ambassador by Dennis Snelling. Dennis, thank you for being on our show. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, so thank you again. You know, Lefty O'Doul, one of those interesting characters of baseball in the 20th century. And I know batting averages were higher in the late 20s and early 30s, and you really can't compare ball. Play- it's hard to compare ball players from different eras, you know, because, you know, in the late 20s and 30s, batting averages were a lot higher. Home runs were a little bit less. Uh, then we had other eras like the 50s where batting averages went down, home runs went up somewhat. And, of course, you know, today we have more home runs and batting average is not quite as high as they used to be, and partly because everybody wants to hit a home run today. So there are more fly balls and there are more strikeouts and there are more walks. But that's enough about baseball right now. July 1st, Thomas Francis Marr. Great American hero, great Irish hero, great changed the history of the world in three continents, Australia, Ireland, and the United States. Not that Ireland's a continent, but Europe. And his unveiling of his bust is going to be on July 1st. There's going to be afterwards, there's going to be a trolley tour of the famous Irish-Americans and Irishmen in the Greenwood Cemetery. And, of course, one of those guys who's going to be uh, highlighted is one of our favorite generals of the Civil War, fighting Tom Sweeney, who's buried, you know, near Fort Hamilton Parkway. And we're going to be very pleased on July 1st, the same day that that tour is going to go on, we're going to talk to Ed Bars about who he calls our hero, fighting Tom Sweeney. And fighting Tom Sweeney was one of the, the great characters of the American Civil War. Maybe not one of the great generals of the American Civil War, but great characters who was in hot water all the time, was involved in court-martials, but... He always got out of the soup because 
there was a general named General Grant who always felt that there wasn't a battle unless Tom Sweeney suffered a wound. And Tom Sweeney was always out there leading the charge. So we're going to be talking about fighting Tom Sweeney, who fought in the U.S. in the Mexican War, in the Indian Wars, in the Civil War, and tried to start a war with Canada. You know, So he had a very interesting military career over those years. And we're going to be talking to Ed Bars about Tom Sweeney on July 1st. Now, if you want to email me a question, you know, I probably don't mention this enough because somebody asked me that. You know, I don't know how to email you a question. Well, the email is Connors and Sullivan. Uh, I'm sorry, the answer at connorsandsullivan.com. The answer at connorsandsullivan.com, all spelled out. We're going to answer every email. Now, sometimes we don't have enough information to put the, you know, put the question on the air. But we answer every email. So thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Next week we're going to be back. We're going to be talking about the Catholic Charities Dinner in Brooklyn and Queens. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs> 